sending uh, out. This is our theme of the series, Sent, and we're sending the message out uh, through Bug and through so many other methods uh, that we're able to, and people that we're able to reach out to people and draw them to Jesus, and uh, that's really what it's all about. I'm glad you're here with us today. Uh, We're in a study of the book of Acts that we're just kind of moving through it chapter to chapter, and uh, today I want to begin and uh, start our message with an assumption and I know what, uh, how dangerous that is. I know what assuming always does and kind of messes us up, puts us in a vulnerable place. But my assumption is that we all today here believe in the inspiration of the Word of God. And I say that because we've been talking about this through this study a few times. And last week, we talked specifically about a phrase called verbal plenary inspiration. And we said that means basically verbal means the very words of Scripture, not just the concept, not just the moral, good morals of Scripture, but the very words of Scripture are inspired by God. In fact, the Bible claims that all Scripture is God-breathed. And the word plenary, we said, even though it's not familiar to us, means the whole Bible. That means the whole Bible is God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. It's all the Word of God, all inspired. And the word inspiration means that God inspired human writers and that God spoke through them and wrote through their hands, through their personality and their style, but it's all God's Word. So we believe that when the Bible says something, that we see it as truth and try to pattern our lives after God's Word. Now, I wanted to lay that out, that assumption. That's where I'm going to be coming from today. And I wanted to establish that before I tell you what I'm talking about, because our topic today is a difficult one. It's one of the two top two things are most difficult to talk about, to be honest with you, because most people don't want to hear what God has to say about two things, about sex and about money. We don't want to hear what God has to say. For some reason, those seem to be off limit to him. But God's pretty clear about both of those topics. And today, in our study, we're going to be talking about the latter of the two. We're going to be talking about money, specifically the difference between generosity and greed. And we're seeing two great examples in our study. So in this book of Acts, we're kind of moving through there, and we discover that just as money is an issue for us today, it was an issue for the people in that day as well. You know, I've seen many times as we've gone through this that the early church, over and over again, we read that the the church was filled with the Holy Spirit, and one way that the Holy Spirit was made evident in their daily lives was in their generosity. And so that's where we pick up our study in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there, all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So we're going to talk about generosity and contrast that with greed here in just a few moments, but I'm going to talk first about generosity And from this section of our reading, there are about five or six things that I think jump out to us about generosity. The first one is that generosity is evidence of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. One of the uh, evidences that someone has truly met God and truly allowed the Holy Spirit to kind of soak into their lives is that they have a change in the way that they view their possessions. 
In verse 33, it says here that they had great power that came from the Holy Spirit. When you read power, that means the Holy Spirit's working in their lives and the Spirit's supernatural work in their hearts and in their minds. And God began challenging them through the power of the Spirit and changed them to think about what they owned and what they should do with it. And the same thing is true with you and I. The help spirit helps us see that all of our blessings come from God, that everything we have originates from God, and that they are to be used to glorify Him, just as our body and lives and words and everything else, and also to help other people. You know, it's interesting that the Bible positions money as the greatest idol against God. The greatest competition against God is money. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one, love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You know, the reality is that money is a big force in our lives. It really is. And if there's a competition against God or between God and things, uh, we're going to struggle with that. All of us do, more than likely. But what God, God isn't specifically trying to get your money out of your hands. God's trying to get the idol out of your heart. That's what God's really saying. Because if this is the greatest competition with God, God wants to win. God wants to get the idol out. So the question is, are you trusting in God or are you trusting in money? Generosity is evidence of the Holy Spirit changing your life from what is natural to what is holy. The second thing is that generosity is evidence of the mission. In verse 33, it says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And you see that over and over again. This was their message, the power of the cross, the power of the, the, the open grave and the, the risen Lord. And they can't stop talking about Jesus and the fact that Jesus had been put to death and now Jesus is alive again. And that was the mission that Jesus had given them. And you know, the reality of it is it took resources for that to happen. It took money for Jesus to be able to drive his mission. You know, several times in the Gospels, we read about the story of certain people who gave generously to help fund Jesus' mission. I mean, Jesus and his 12, and I think you've probably seen from our study, also if you watch The Chosen, you've probably seen there were a lot of people that moved with them. And we, we kind of get the idea in Scripture that they jumped from this town to the next, but the reality is there were several miles between some of these towns. There were several days' travel. There was food. There was uh, hospitality. There was all sorts of needs. And so there were people that gave to Jesus' ministry in order for him to be able to accomplish his mission. He has supporters all along the way that provided for he and his followers. And you know, the same thing is true today. It takes money to drive the same mission. Bug just talked about that. She talked about the schools and the work and the sponsorships and everything else that it takes to be able to fund a mission like FCA or any other mission that you have or the church as well. It takes money to drive the mission. You know, we state our mission as a church that we want to move people on a simple journey toward Jesus. And we're passionate about that. And to be honest with you, everything that's given to the church is given to drive that either here or somewhere else around the world. You know, somebody asked me the other day, they said, is, this, is it really a simple journey? Is it really a simple journey? And they were struggling with that, and I guess that, that depends on your definition of simple. Uh, if you think simple just means easy, then no. Nobody's saying it's an easy journey. And there's a lot more definitions for simple than just easy, right? Simple also means straightforward, clear, easily understood, uncomplicated, basic, fundamental. 
And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is easy and simple for us to understand. And the journey that we're called upon is not easy journey. No one say it's easy. In fact, it's impossible to do it alone. But when the Holy Spirit moves into our life and begins to work, we're able to begin our journey by giving our life to Christ and then continue our journey faithfully because we have the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. When God truly gets a hold of your heart, and his spirit begins to work inside of you, it becomes the mission is going to drive generosity. It's going to be easier. It's going to be clearly focused for us to see. And I think that's what we see in the Bible. These disciples laid aside everything, including family, their careers, everything, to pursue Jesus and to lead other people to Jesus as well. So generosity uh, is evident of that as well. Thirdly, generosity is evident of unity. It says in verse 32, they were of one heart and mind. Several places, it emphasizes the unity of the church. They all in one place, one mind, one heart, and they met each other's needs. You know, God alone who can, can bring unity uh, out of strife. And, and one of the greatest ways for us to nurture and grow that unity is to show generosity. It's the spirit of giving. When you give, it just seems to draw you to people. You know, generous people tend to get along. Uh, they're not worried about taking, they're worried about giving. They don't fight. Generous people don't fight among themselves. They're humble. They don't have to be right all the time. They don't demand their own way because the mission is more important than their opinions and, by, and their own preferences. They just give freely. They just give it away to help the mission move forward and to see more people come to Jesus. Now, when I talk about unity, sometimes people get confused and they think that unity means uniformity, that we all have to just stand in line and look the same and act the same and think the same. And that, that doesn't mean we agree on everything. It means we just agree on the essentials, on the priority. You know, our church is a member of a, a historical group called the Restoration Movement, a plan and an attempt to try to restore the church of the day as it was in Bible times. And one of the mottos of the restoration movement is this, in essentials, unity, in opinion, liberty, but in all things, love. In other words, what it's really important we come together on, what's not so important to, to salvation or to the mission, we can all have different opinions, but the main thing is we love each other. And unity means that Jesus is moving in us to work together and give together financially so the more and more people will come to know him. The fourth thing I notice about this is that generosity is evidence of love. In verse 34, again, there was not a needy person among them. So the Holy Spirit was moving and was convicting individuals, saying things like, you know what, you need to go buy some groceries for this person. You need to pay their rent. They're struggling right now. You need to go buy some diapers for this young family. And when you have the Holy Spirit moving in you, you will occasionally be prompted to help someone. You will be compelled by their need, by the love of Christ, and you're going to just share with them uh, spontaneously. So the people in that day were doing that. They were giving, and they were sharing, and they were helping one another out. Now, why was it so necessary? Well, that world was different than ours when it comes to needs and how they're met. There was no Medicare and no welfare or no Medicaid or anything like that. And in a lot of ways, I think it's sad that these government programs are, uh, are oftentimes abused and poorly run and unavailable to people that really, really have need of them, you know? But what's even sadder maybe is that these programs and the government have taken over where the church should be doing. Because in that day, the church recognized needs. And not just the needs within the church, they recognized needs outside and they ministered to widows and orphans. 
They administrated help where it was needed. They required accountability from those who needed it. But love is what drove their generosity. Love is what, you know, helped demonstrate the love that they have for others and also their willingness to give beyond what was normal and what was reasonable that day. And one of the ways that they showed their love was to sell personal property and to give it to those in need. In verse 34, there's an example. It says that from time to time, they own, those who own land or houses, sell them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And this type of sacrificial giving was, was a part of their generosity. They gave, they tithed, they gave their offerings, but sometimes they went above and beyond that. Now, let me just say this, that nobody was forced to do that. Nobody came up and said, hey, Randy, you got an extra piece of land there or a home, you know, a rental home you're not living in. You need to sell that and you need to give that to somebody else. No, nobody was saying that. Not everybody sold all their property. Not everybody gave everything that they sold uh, from it away. But it's an important part to kind of see what happened in the life of the church. We'll talk about that in a moment. This was not an early form of socialism nor of communism. What this was was real fellowship and community. In fact, they called this koinonia. It's a Greek word that, that basically means they shared in needs. There was fellowship. There was community. You know, communism says what's yours is mine and I'm going to take it. But koinonia says what is mine is yours and I'm going to share it. And that's what the early church experienced. No one forced anybody to do anything. They did it willingly as the Holy Spirit led them. You know, if you want to grow in love for someone, you need to, you, you might try giving to them because givers make the very best parents. They make the very best uh, spouses, friends, employees, and the best church members because they love big and they love well. It's not about what is given. It's about how God is changing you and how you view what you have and view those who are in need. So generosity is all about evidence of love. Generosity is also evidence of leadership. It's learning how to lead through giving. You know, we're introduced here to a man in verse 36 that is, uh, his name is Joseph, but the church actually nicknamed him something else. They called him Barnabas. And Barnabas means the son of encouragement. Barnabas here goes on to become a leader in the church. He's a pastor. He's a missionary. Um, but our introduction to him is through his generosity. It seems that Barnabas was one of the first ones in the early church to decide he was going to make a big sacrifice. And that sacrifice would be to sell a, a piece of property, a field, and give the money to the church. You know, this is evidence not only of spiritual growth, I think, but also of spiritual leadership. Because as a person grows and matures in their faith, they think less of what they have, and they think more of others and more of the mission, and they begin to think, well, I don't really have need of these things, or I don't have to have these things. Somebody else certainly has greater need than I, and so they're willing to give them away. The Holy Spirit moves in our hearts to, make, to think like that and to get joy out of it, not resentment, but joy. So when we feel the leading of the Holy Spirit, we need to move on it. And I would just say that, that as you grow in your faith, you're going to feel the Spirit prompt you at times to, to do something or give something or share something or go call someone and begin to give a part of yourself. So Barnabas here is, is leading and giving because that's what leaders do. You know, here at Journey Church, we ask all of our leaders to commit to, to give sacrificially by committing to tithe to the church. And our elders and deacons are asked to make that commitment when they come on. And the reason is that if leaders aren't generous, then the church won't be generous. 
And if you're not generous toward God and generous toward God's people, then you really haven't earned the right to lead God's people. And so the Holy Spirit here led Barnabas to sell his land and to give all of that to the church. You see, his actions and his heart for others earned him this name of encouragement, the son of encouragement, Barnabas. And what a great thing to be known about. We should all be called Barnabas in some ways. We should all be those kind of encouragers and givers and and people that are known to lift people up and have a heart of generosity. And here's the last thing I noticed about generosity here. It's also evidence of trust. Do you notice what Barnabas did with, with that money that he sold and got from the land? He brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that seemingly was in front of everyone. Now, I don't think this was for bragging. We see the heart and the the love of Barnabas. He didn't do it for the attention, but he brought that to set an example and to also show trust, I think, in the leadership of the church. See, Barnabas sold the land and he didn't give it to his favorite charity. He didn't insist on doing all the research to find out where every penny was going. And he, he didn't designate the money to go somewhere. He brought it to the church and trusted the leaders to use it in the very best way possible. You know, the world today has a critical spirit sometime toward the church about money. It really does. And I guess in some ways that may have been earned. But let me tell you this. We want to earn your trust and we want to make you feel comfortable and confident that when you give to Journey Church, and we thank you for doing that. You've seen what some of the outcome of that is. But when you do that, your giving is handled confidently and we are trustworthy. We have a lot of safeguards in place. Uh, and policy uh, so that we make sure as far as integrity, we followed uh, GAAP accounting principles, which may mean nothing to you whatsoever, other than to say that's a, a high level of integrity there. And we operate on a strict budget. We have a budget we prepare, we present every year. In a couple of weeks, we're going to do that. Uh, we keep excellent records. We report quarterly to our elder board, and we require accountability from the partners and ministries that we partner with. And we do all those things because we really want to be trustworthy and and, as a a place where you can give. And the Bible teaches that we should give to the church. The Bible teaches that tithes and offerings go to the church because the church is the only institution that Jesus started. There's plenty of great places out there doing great things, but our giving, we believe, begins with the church. Only institution Jesus started. And to be honest with you, it's the only one that will be around when he comes back. It's the only thing that will endure the test of time. And so there's credibility in that. The church endures forever. It is the most trustworthy place that you can give. So that's kind of what generosity is. And we see how the the early church played that out. Now I want to look at the other side at a tragic example of greed. And one of the most, probably the most amazing, surprising stories in the Bible. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 5 verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter replied to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? 
Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. You know, stories like this kind of remind us of the power of God and how his judgment can come. We see God in the Old Testament do things like this. It's not as common in the New Testament, but it really kind of is a sobering moment here. You know, aren't you glad that that God does, that, that doesn't happen to everybody who doesn't give like they should? Because we'd all be dead, right? Uh, none of us would be sitting here. We'd all be dead if God killed everybody who was a bad steward at times. So we thank God for his amazing grace, but that doesn't diminish the, 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 the lesson that we find here. I mean, this was a sobering moment with the church. Everybody kind of sat up and, and listened and watched whenever this happened. And it was a message that you don't mess with God. You know, maybe Ananias and Sapphira were leaders in the church. Maybe that's why it was kind of called out. Maybe they, they were leaders, they were more accountable But it's pretty obvious that they wanted the same kind of recognition that Barnabas got. You know, Barnabas got a new name and recognition for his giving, and so they were looking for that as as well, perhaps. But the story bears a little more insight and kind of see what greed is about, because we see generosity on one hand and greed in the second part of the story. So what is greed? Well, Well, greed is stealing. One of the Ten Commandments, I might remind you, is do not steal. And most of us think, when we think of stealing, we think about taking something from another person that doesn't belong to us. But, but in reality, we can steal from God as well. In fact, the Bible tells us that if we don't tithe our income, we are actually stealing from God. Malachi chapter 3 asks, will a mere mortal rob God? And yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. So when he talks about giving, he contrasts, even in the scripture, about how you can steal from God or how you can be blessed by God. Which one do you choose? Now, the word tithe means 10% doesn't mean just a a gift, it means 10%. That belongs to God, and if we don't give it to God, we're actually stealing from Him, even though He's not striking us dead right now. It it really is what it is. And if the Holy Spirit convicts us to give more and above that, see, everybody in that day was tithing, but Barnabas, he decided to give more. And at some point, the Holy Spirit must have prompted Ananias and Sapphira to give more as well. Got this idea in their head, we need to sell, sell this land or this field, and we need to give it to God. And if we are convicted to do that, and then we don't carry through, then we're actually stealing from God. And that seems to be the situation here. The Spirit led them to sell their land, but they didn't give what they were told to give. Nobody said you had to give it all. Nobody said you had to sell it to begin with. But if you did and you committed that, then they were then stealing from God. The second thing I noticed here is that greed is demonic. Where does greed come from? It comes from Satan. Ananias brought some of the money and expected to be commended from that, but God gave Peter supernatural knowledge of what Ananias had done. Peter saw through it. He had discernment. He saw what was happening here. And so he confronted him and asked him, why has Satan filled your heart? The fact that Satan was the one who convinced him or or led him to say, uh, to keep some back and to lie. You know, the, the heart is the source of good and evil. And Satan wants to fill our heart with greed and selfishness. 
And we're demonic whenever we think we're following him, not God. Ananias and Sapphira had quenched the Spirit's leading in their giving, and they allowed Satan to consume their thinking and to justify. The third thing we notice that greed is lying. In verse 3, Peter asked, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? So Ananias and Sapphira agreed that they would lie when they said they had given all the price of the land to the church. Again, no one said they had to sell it at all, give the money. They didn't have to give all the money, but they lied and said they did when they had not. Peter said, you didn't lie to to us, you lied to God. In fact, specifically, he said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And that's even worse. You know, God gives us his spirit to live in us and direct us, but when we intentionally sin against the spirit, it's the worst kind of sin. Matthew chapter 12 says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And so the Bible teaches that, you know, you could even speak about Jesus, and that's not as bad as speaking or lying or blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so it was a very serious thing that they had done. It was lying. It was stealing. But it's also kind of revealed their hearts. That's the third thing. Our our fourth thing, our hearts are going to determine if we're generous or not. And if you're generous and a faithful steward, then we're going to be be led to give. And we're we're going to be led to understand that's what generosity is like. And a lot of you out there uh, would say amen. In fact, some of you today would probably stand up and give a testimony to say, you know, we, we started giving and serving and tithing, and, and, you know, I wouldn't change it because that's the only way to live, and God's blessed us because of that. And so a lot of you would agree with that, but if this message is kind of disturbing to you and makes you uncomfortable and resentful, then that may be a, a problem of the heart. That may be revealing something inside that you haven't dealt with, with totally. And then the fifth thing I see is that greed is fatal. It's fatal. What happened to them? They were struck dead. They died dramatic deaths because they chose money over God. You know, the truth is that at one day, we're going to be held to account, called before God, not only whether we follow Jesus, but also how we've responded to the Holy Spirit's leading and if we've been faithful stewards. If you recall the parables of Jesus, he talks about the faithful steward, the unfaithful steward, using what they had been given for the master's glory, for, you know, for success, for more uh, people to be won to Jesus through our giving. And so that's what our giving is all about. Ananias and Sapphira's death showed the danger of greed. And no doubt it also became a deterrent for other people because in verse 11, it says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I mean, it was pretty sobering, pretty terrifying to think what had happened here and made them cautious and respect God more. Aren't you glad that God's judgment isn't immediate like it was with Ananias and Sapphira, that he doesn't strike us dead the moment that we fail him or the moment that we sin in some way? He gives us a chance to repent of our wickedness and selfishness and be obedient. So we can decide whether we're going to choose between generosity and greed. And you know, the bottom line is kind of this, that God owns everything. I mean, it really is here. And by his grace, he allows us to manage a portion of it, a part of it. And you say, well, I know people who have a lot more than I do. We all do, right? There's always somebody that has more. But God's given us what we can handle, probably in most cases. But we, by his grace, are given a portion to manage while we're alive. But little or much, it all belongs to him. Every bit of it. And we need to keep that in mind. 
And that's why in his wisdom, God gives us a way to give. You might say, well, how much do I need to give to God? Well, God says, I'll tell you, it's a percentage. You know, that's why God says the tithe is it, 10%. And then if our income increases, we increase our giving. It's pretty simple. And you know, it's really a pretty good deal if you think about it. It really is. Instead of asking, why does God get 10%, you might ask the question, why do I get 90%? Why do I get the majority of it, right? Why do I get to keep that? I mean, God gives it to us. He gives us health, opportunity, freedom, resources, ability. He gives us all those things so that we can earn money. He gives it all to us, and he says, oh, by the way, 10% is mine. You know, it's a whole lot better deal than what the government gives, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you like to have a flat 10% tax rate? Wouldn't that be awesome? Where you don't pay property tax and all those income and all those things. Just 10%, you know? We love that. And the government doesn't give us anything. It all comes from God. So when you kind of think about it and you process it, you say, that's a pretty great deal when you think about it. Why do we hesitate about giving generously to God? Why do we hesitate? It's our selfishness. Sometimes it's the self. It's maybe even Satan creeping in a little bit, telling us we deserve more. Because here's the thing, before you give anything to God, God gives it to you. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, God say, you need to go and borrow a bunch of money to give it to me, and I will give it back to you. No, he says, when you receive, you give back to God. God wants you to give back as of, our, of our resources. But you know what? That's not the number one thing that God wants from us at all. That really isn't the primary thing, not your money at all. We give money because we recognize he owns it all and he owns us. But what God does want first from you is you. He wants you, all of you. He wants the good and the bad that you have to give. You know what he wants first? He wants your sin. He wants you to bring your sin and give it to him and be forgiven. Isn't that amazing? Not the best of us. He wants the worst of us front and first. And when we do that, then he gives us everything. He will give you salvation and forgiveness and love and righteousness, eternal life. He will give you adoption within his family, a new nature. He'll give you the Holy Spirit. I mean, that is a heck of a deal if you think about it. It really is. That's what God longs to give you. Well, there's a lot of lessons we can learn from Ananias and Sapphira, but one final lesson and powerful lesson that we can learn from them is that we presume there's always time to repent. There's always time to get right with God. You know, they made this deal, this, you know, Ananias is going to go first, and probably Sapphira had no plan to go at all until Ananias disappeared. No cell phones and no communication. You know, she didn't know where he was. She went to find him. But both of them knew what they were doing. They agreed. They stated they knew the the plan. And they probably assumed there would be time to repent and get right with God. But they never got it, did we? And the reality is that no one is promised that time. And we can't assume that it's there. We can't assume that somewhere down the road, last minute, we're going to make ourselves right with God. We're going to repent of how we lived our life. And, you know, we didn't accept Jesus. We're going to do it last minute on our deathbed. It might happen, but there's no assurance, is it? So we need to learn from the mistakes of other people and the truth of God's word. And we need to make sure that today we are right with him in the moment that we're being faithful stewards in the moment all the time, that we're being obedient, that we're listening to the Holy Spirit, we're letting him speak into our life, and we're responding and letting his word teach us and change us. And when we do that, we find ourselves in a right place with God and in a way, a place where God really can use us. And I want to just wrap up real quick by saying this. You know, we all know what's going on in the Mideast, and we know 
uh, about, and we've heard so many people say that praying for Israel. And it, it occurred to me the other day, as I was driving in and kind of listening to the radio about that, is that, you know, if you go look at the Old Testament, you'll see that God allowed a lot of things to happen to Israel. But every time that it happened, it was to drive them to him. He allowed them to be overcome, to be overtaken, to be destroyed, to be taken into captivity. But it was all with the goal was to drive them back to him. And you know, the Bible has a lot to say about Israel and about Israel's future. And we don't totally understand all that. But one thing I know is that God wants not only Israel, but every nation, every person to come to him. And so we ought to see the difficulties of life. We need to pray for people. Uh, we need to pray for those who are innocent on both sides of this, of this war um, and their protection and their safety and comfort for those who have lost. We need to pray for all that. But more importantly, more than anything, pray that Israel and America would come to God and the rest of the world as well, that all would come to know him and submit to his authority. Because again, we never know that we're going to get that last minute time to repent and turn back, be right with God. This morning, if you want to make a decision toward Christ or for Christ, I'm going to be up front. Tony will be here as well. We just want to be, provide a place and a time for you to respond to what God may be saying to you as we look in his word and we see the power of the spirit. Maybe God's spirit's working in your heart right now, and you need to respond to him as much in giving your life as they need to respond to him in their generosity. Whatever God may be teaching you or sharing with you, we invite you to come if you want someone to talk to about your next step on your journey. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, this story is disturbing in a lot of ways. Uh, God, it kind of rocks us as, as we think about your power. God, it, it makes us think about our giving. It makes us think about our accountability to God, about our stewardship. And Lord, I pray that as we know this is your word and your truth, that we might um, surrender our lives to you in this area, Lord. But God, we know that it's not primarily about what we have. It's about whose we are. And Lord, I pray that there are those here this morning that needs to come to you, Lord, then they would take that step out to come to you, to follow Jesus, to receive him as their Lord and Savior. Father, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. And let's stand to worship him.